Welcome to The Lead, a podcast where we learn how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did it. I'm Charlotte Northworthy. We're releasing this episode of The Lead as a part of our celebration of News Engagement Day at the Grady College. For those not familiar, News Engagement Day is an annual digital event created to encourage engagement with news and promote understanding about the principles and processes of journalism all across the country. On this episode of The Lead, I talk with three media leaders about three different topics discussed at this year's Online News Association Conference in Austin, Texas. The leaders in this episode are Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter John Carreyrou, content strategist Sarah Tooley from the USA Today Network, and data viz reporter Brittany Mays from The Washington Post. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast was created by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership as a part of its Innovation Fellowship Program. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. First, we hear from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist John Carreyrou about his investigative project with the Wall Street Journal on the Theranos scandal. Theranos is, or was, a startup company that sought to create a cutting-edge blood testing system, but it unfortunately overpromised and underdelivered. He's now written a book on this years-long project and offers some helpful tidbits for those seeking to get into investigative work. I'd love to talk a little bit about your book that's coming out and the inspiration behind what transformed it from the A1 story to a book and now maybe documentary. Please tell me a little bit about that. Right. Well, I've been a a newspaper reporter for 20 years, and it's it's actually always been my uh, secret ambition to spin a story out of my journal reporting into a book. And it just happened to take that long for me to come across the right story. And I finally did with this uh, Theranos scandal. And uh, why did I think it carried a book? Because uh, A, it, it took place, in, it was a fraud that took place in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley has become incredibly important to our country. If you look at the economy, the, the previous breed of Silicon Valley startups are the biggest companies now in the country. Two of them are, are worth a trillion dollars. It's become incredibly important culturally. Um, you know, smart young uh, men and women graduate from college and now they don't go to Wall Street anymore. They want to go to Silicon Valley and they want to become the next Mark Zuckerberg. So uh, Silicon Valley is this object of fascination in our society. And at the same time, another bubble has sort of risen over there with the unbelievable amounts of money that have flowed into the Silicon Valley ecosystem and are being thrown at uh, these college dropouts. And and this, this story, it's sort of like a parable of what can go wrong when an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley goes off the rails. I felt that more than just another corporate scandal, this was a story that had a lot of broader thematic ramifications about Silicon Valley. And that's why I thought it was a book. For those journalists that are approaching an intimidating career in the journalism industry, seeking either investigative careers or just otherwise general reporting, what advice would you offer to them being on the opposite end of of the spectrum now and having a, a nice career under your belt? Right. Well, if we're talking about young people who want to go into investigative reporting in particular, I started my career in the mid-90s and I read All the President's Men by Woodward and and Bernstein, and it was really inspired uh, by that book, as corny as it may sound. Uh, But I think my view of investigative journalism at that stage was that it was really glamorous. And I've since come to learn that actually it's not 
often not very glamorous. It's a lot of hard work in obscurity. Sometimes you hit dry holes, you know, stories don't work out. Other times you, you do bring home the story, but it doesn't have the impact that you'd imagined. Really, it, it's difficult work, and it's work that requires, above all, persistence and perseverance. And so for, you know, young men and women uh, looking to get into this line of work, I think they should go into it with their eyes wide open about these things, you know, and then if you're lucky and, and uh, you do good work, sometimes you come across these career-making stories uh, like the, the Theranos scandal. Those are a lot of fun and, you know, very rewarding. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Yep. Next, we hear from Sarah Tooley, content strategist for the USA Today Network in Texas. She's led teams in the social media space for more than a decade, so we talk about vertical storytelling and its place in journalism. So as a woman of many hats who's seen a lot of digital change over the years, one thing that I'm seeing at the ONA conference this year is this idea of vertical storytelling. And speaking from a J school perspective, we're taught always flip your phone horizontally, always tell stories in a horizontal plane. And now we're seeing that these rules are somehow broken. What are your thoughts on that? I actually am a big proponent of whenever somebody comes to talk to me about this for vertical video, just because we need to be able to give our content and serve our content to the audience in the way that they're coming to us the most. And right now that's mobile, mobile devices. Mobile devices are vertical oriented. So I get kind of the other side and where they're coming from with horizontal but there's still ways around it. I mean, we've got services. We use one within our own newsroom that kind of addresses the the black space that happens when you import vertical video. But the majority of the audience that we actually have is never going to see that. What they are going to see is what's on their mobile device. So why are we making them squint at mobile devices when we have the opportunity to deliver that video in its native format. What is some advice that you might have for early career journalists or student journalists who are trying to showcase their skills in social? It's it's sort of stereotypical, but also true that that the youngsters know how to work the social media, right? So what are some, some, some advice tips that you have for journalists, young journalists, to be able to showcase those skills? First and foremost, one of the things that's always a big turnoff is make sure that your social accounts are branded with yourself. One tip I always give reporters is that your your story doesn't stop when you submit it to your editors for publication. When it's actually published on digital media, now it's time for you to become a marketer of your own content. So make sure your handles have your name. Make sure your social accounts have your name and not, you know, Jedi Princess 23. You want to be able to have somebody look for you on social and find the content you're producing. The second thing I always say is try to keep, which is really, really hard in, in today's political climate, to stay impartial. Do not get political with your post. Do not share. Do not make a lot of commentary unless that is what you're planning. If you're planning to go into opinion editorial, which is a very small, very small niche nowadays, you really need to keep that impartiality open. And you always want people to say, I don't know if they're conservative or liberal. I don't know if they support this candidate or that candidate, which takes a lot of, you know, tongue biting on, on our own parts. But 
it really does pay off because you don't want a potential employer to go and see all Hillary or all Trump or all local races or, oh, you're complaining. That being said, look at what the media has to offer to give you a chance to showcase your skills. One of the biggest tips I actually got was from the ONA student newsroom, a former alum, who showed me her entire portfolio on Twitter by making and creating a Twitter moment. And so I could see all of her best photos, all of her best videos, all of the coverage and live coverage she's done all in one spot. And she sends that out to potential recruiters or if she makes a, a connection with somebody at a conference, she can say, well, you can see my work. It's, he, it's a Twitter moment that's pinned at the top of my Twitter account. And I thought that was brilliant because it's all about showcasing especially when you're coming into a conference or a job fair and making it easier for recruiters to be able to find your stuff and not have to kind of hunt through your news feeds or your your time streams. Thank you so much for your thoughts, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Uh Uh-huh, no problem. For those of you interested in the service that Sarah mentioned that optimizes vertical video for the web, you can check out Watch It, a licensed video creation platform for newsrooms. Finally, we hear from Brittany Mays. She's a Washington Post graphics reporter. Her work has included building interactives and applications, analyzing data, and producing breaking news graphics. We discuss the need for data analytics skills in newsrooms. I wanted to talk to you about your experience with data visualization and coding and scraping and all the cool back-end things of journalism. (laughs) What have you found to be the most useful about data visualization? I feel like not a lot of people in the newsrooms nowadays have these skills, and they teach them a little bit in J school, but not that much. So tell me about your experience. Yeah, so um, I think there's a lot of things that can be said in text. Um, But there's a lot of things that can be said better with data and data viz. Um, So data viz is there to essentially enhance a story, to help people who are visual learners get into the story more. Um, It's really a way to just, you know, give people information in a different way that they might be more attuned to learning with. So for student journalists, what do you recommend? What is some advice that you have for them who may be interested and think that data visualization is really cool, but coding seems really intimidating? If you look at code, it's like, ah, scary. (laughs) So what do you you recommend for them if they want to be sort of a self-starter? Yeah, I mean, you can start with Google Sheets. You can start with Microsoft Excel. Like, start with just basic spreadsheets. There are ways to chart within those. See how you feel with that once you get comfortable there. Um, You can branch out. There's things like Tableau. There's other things where if you wanted to get more into coding, none of, you don't have to code to make data viz. Uh, There's a lot of tools, chart wrapper. Um, A lot of newsrooms do use some simplified tools uh, for reporters who don't have coding skills. Um, So you don't have to worry about that. Having a solid base in data is really important. And then you can translate those to charts and maps and whatever if you need. But if you do want to get into coding, just start small. Think of a project that you've done the data work with and you think this would be a good graphic. Um, And then just start building it. Um, JavaScript D3 is something that's really big, but it's hard to learn for most people. So 
start with some plugins, start with like jQuery, Python, things like that, and just keep building on top. And as a final question, transparency in the news is highly prioritized nowadays in this administration that we're covering. So where do you foresee transparency and data visualization? Do you see data viz being more prioritized in coverage and incorporating data into coverage more and explaining how we got to the graphs that we got to? Where do you foresee this this corner of news going? Yeah, so that's a little tricky because I think data viz if not done correctly, can be deceiving. So it's things where people don't zero their axes. You like look at something really fast and you could think one value is actually something completely different. It's where people use like they visualize data that's extremely outdated. And that's a problem because people take that as truth in that moment versus like this is a study from 10 years ago. I personally, um, and a lot of people I work with, try to be really careful with data, especially data that we visualize. If there's something that you want to visualize, but the data isn't up to date, or there's just something's a little off with it, we make sure that's in text and not visuals. People take visuals, I think, more as truth, maybe now than ever. Be careful with that. And as far as ways that we can make things more transparent, A lot of places have been releasing their data that's behind. They've been writing methodologies. There's a lot of scripts and things like that that have been published with really in-depth investigative pieces so you can see the exact steps they've taken. So yeah, there's there's a lot being done, I think, to be more transparent in data and data viz, but it's really up to both doing the effort to make sure that everything is out there for the public and then being careful with what you visualize. Thanks so much for being here, Brittany. Thanks for listening to The Lead. I'm your host, Charlotte Northworthy. This episode was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. For more episodes with interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on iTunes or Google Play. Be sure to tune into the next episode where I talk with Jonathan Peters, a media lawyer and professor about the relevance of media ethics today. Until next time.